Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care, and I have with me today Dr. Scott Hayworth, who's an OBGYN physician and also the President and Chief Executive Officer of the New York-based Caremount Medical, and he's been doing that for more than 20 years. And an interesting statistic about Caremount is that it is the largest independent multi-specialty medical group in the United States. And in that capacity, he's overseen a nearly 15-fold expansion in the size of Caremount. They've gone from 40 physicians to 650 providers, of whom 500 are physicians. And we invited him uh, to chat with us today because he has a national reputation as an authority on not only practice administration and multi-specialty group management, which you would assume based on his experience, but also on adaptation to the rapidly changing environment in healthcare, including the transition to value. And Dr. Hayward, there's no question that we're in one of the most rapidly changing environments to ever hit healthcare because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're all aware of the strain that it's put on hospitals um, and staff, particularly ICUs. We see it on the news at night. But increasingly, people like yourselves are worried about the impact COVID is having on preventive care and chronic illness. Can you tell us what we know about the state of care for people without COVID? Are, Are they getting lost in the shuffle? Sure. So before I answer that question, I just want to comment that I was CEO during 9-11, I've been CEO for 23 years. And so that was another crisis in America. And I think the difference is 9-11 was, even though it was very tragic, was very short-lived. And so COVID is over a much longer period of time and affects us in everything we do. So I, I, I think that's the big difference between the two. On the outpatient side, we're very concerned. We, very early on, were concerned about our patients who needed preventive care. We were not allowed to do things like screening colonoscopies in the office. We could do emergent colonoscopies. We take care of 665,000 patients. We're next-gen ACO. We're one of 40 next-gens in the country. So we have roughly 40,000 patients in our our, uh, next-gen ACO for Medicare patients. So we're very attuned to keeping people well. And we're very worried we didn't want to cure people from COVID and lose them, God forbid, to diabetes out of control or hypertension out of control or that early colon cancer or those colon polyps that needed to be removed. So we, we were very, very concerned. We now are fully back and doing everything we need to do with appropriate social distancing. But during that period of time, we were very worried. And we're very worried about those patients who had missed visits to make sure that they still came in for their visits. And we do have a backlog, but um, it is very, very concerning. And we're worried that if there is a second wave, we're worried that it's very, very important that patients get their preventative visits or follow up for the chronic disease. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I've read that the number of people seeking care in emergency departments for serious things like heart attacks and strokes is down. And if that's true, what is going on? Are, are there fewer of those events or are people just not seeking care? Well, it's anecdotal. However, clearly people are dying at home who used to go to the emergency room for things like MIs. 
I'll give you one specific instance that I know of. We had a, a lung cancer patient who had a nodule, and one of the health systems told us that she could not have her biopsy done. We didn't know it was cancer at that point because they were only doing emergence, and they declared that this was an elective case, which sounds pretty unbelievable. We took it upon ourselves to have the patient get the biopsy done at another institution. That came back cancer. Patient then had a resection, and we saved that patient. So that was clearly a cure. If we had listened to the first health system, our doctors didn't take no for an answer, and they went ahead and they pushed further and found the patient a institution that would do the biopsy. So that's just a small instance of people not getting the care they needed during COVID. So it's interesting. I was going to ask you about people not going in because they're afraid uh, of going to a healthcare institution where they believe that they would be more likely to be exposed to the virus than somewhere else in their community. But you also raised the specter of the healthcare system itself being afraid of having the patients come in. So can you talk to us a little bit about specifically how do you help people, patients and, and healthcare providers, feel safe in a healthcare environment, feel safe enough that they will seek care? So so the first thing we did was communication. And I think one of the major points we learned during COVID was the importance of communicating with providers with staff, and with patients. And we were appraised by a number of patients that found our communication better than other providers in the region. Um, We have a great marketing team, and communication calmed everyone down and helped the organization sort of row in the same direction. I appointed one of our medical directors as chief safety officer, and his role was specifically to consult on all our operations with the operations team to make sure that everything was done appropriately and that we were offering a safe environment. I think if you don't do a good job of communicating, even if you're putting the right things in place, you're not able to um, reassure the patient. And um, have you had an uptick in in-person visits or is it really uh, an uptick in people being willing to use telemedicine, for example? So we were 6,000 visits before a day before COVID. We're running about 6,300 a day now. At peak COVID, we were doing 1,500 televisits a day. Now we're down to roughly a couple hundred a day. So you're seeing a big change. So our volumes are actually higher. And one reason they're higher is because we have done a good job of communicating to the patients that's a safe environment for them to come in. Do you actually have any, any results besides the fact that people are coming into the office? Have you had any any evidence of transmission as a result of people coming in? Is there anything that you know about that? And the other piece of information that I wanted was you've talked about the concern that people are going to have um, undiagnosed cancers. Have you started, besides the one that you just told us, which was a near miss, have you had any examples of that? Well, we obviously have the one one patient for sure. We have not heard yet of a colon cancer that got missed. It's still hard to tell. We have advanced analytics. 
So fortunately, through our NextGen ACO, we used care coordinators to reach out to our high-risk patients, and we were able to bring a lot of those patients in. So hopefully, we did not have issues like that. The, the real problem was, what was frustrating for us was the inability to perform screening colonoscopy. Anyone with symptoms got treated and got taken care of. However, it was important that we did do that. But when you find a polyp, it's, it's hard to tell when that polyp started. Just like when you, as a physician, you know, when you find a colon cancer, you don't know if that colon cancer was there three months before, four months before. You know, I had a conversation with a oncologist recently and asked him the same question about what, what, are you, what kinds of changes in practice uh, are you seeing as a result of COVID? And he talked about um, some medications that they don't use anymore, but the most interesting part was talking about looking at prognosis and deciding whether um, you could safely reduce the dose or more importantly, reduce the frequency so the patients have less exposure to the healthcare system. Are, you, are there any kinds of protocols that are, you're, you're rolling out along that nature? We have not reduced the number of um, chemo visits. However, if you look at NCI, looked at this, and they think, National Cancer Institute, that we're going to see more than 10,000 deaths from breast and colorectal cancers because of um, COVID. So I, I think you've got to be very, very careful reducing people's medicines because the last thing you want to do is reduce their visits, save them from COVID, and then have them die from cancer. So my advice to everyone would be to make sure you're giving them chemo in a safe environment so that you don't have to reduce the visits. Obviously, if there's things you can do at home, things you can do as an outpatient rather than in a hospital, it's much safer. But I would not support reducing the um, frequency of treatments. And are you doing anything um, to eliminate waiting rooms, for example, which always seems like a weird thing to me anyway, that if you're sick, you go and sit in a room with a bunch of other sick people, or worse, if you're well, you go and sit in a room with a bunch of other sick people. Um, how are you making sure from, from the minute somebody shows up uh, to the time they leave the doctor's office that their exposure is as minimal as possible? Sure. So we, we use a product called Freesia, and with Freesia's help, we let patients check in from, the, from their cars, from the street. We also we will let people wait in their cars or outside. So we only call them in then when they're ready to be seen and they can go directly in the room. We've removed chairs out of waiting rooms, so there's less chairs, so everyone's socially distanced. We're doing frequent cleaning. So without a doubt, we are doing everything humanly possible to make sure it's a safe environment for our patients. And everybody's got PPE on, I'm, I'm assuming. That, that's correct. You know, during the height, and we're spending roughly $125,000 a week on PPE to give you an idea of the extra unbudgeted expense for outpatient groups like ours. And that's what the federal government has to realize, that it's fine to help the hospitals. However, the outpatient care needs support as well. Yeah, it's interesting in the whole conversation about the economic impact of COVID on the healthcare system. The focus has been on the hospitals. But um, and, and particularly the impact of st 
stopping elective surgery, which is the driver of income for most hospitals in the United States. But they do tend to forget that it's also not, not only a source of safety for patients, but a source of income. How are you guys doing? Have you, have you recovered to your pre-COVID le- levels? So, so we, of course, we are taking a financial hit this year. Um, we now are back to where we were pre-COVID, but you had a three or four month period where everyone got hit financially. So unfortunately, we're feeling it this year. I think every everyone is. Yeah, I, I know. Um, my, my son's a radiologist in, in Boise and their group took a pretty big hit during the time when they shut off the elective procedures. Uh, so what I wanted to ask you now is, well, first of all, are there any other innovations that you've done? Um, are you doing anything, for example, group visits online or more emphasis and support for, you know, do-it-yourself care, particularly for diabetics where, where so much of their care is dependent on what they do or don't do? Um, any innovations in, in that area, either ongoing or planned? Not yet, but think about, I think we've all learned to use telehealth a lot more. So now a patient can choose whether they want to see their provider via telehealth or in person. We are also looking at ways to use our physical space better, not only in waiting rooms, but also um, our back office. We still have a lot of people working from home, which is something we never did. So we probably will reduce our commercial footprint at some point. So, so we're coming out of this. I think the key thing for us is we learned really the use of communication. Not that we weren't communicating well before, but I think we've really increased our communication. And I think both our staff, the physicians, and our patients appreciate that. Well, that's great. It sounds like you guys have put a lot of a lot of work into responding to this. And besides telehealth and the increased attention to keeping things clean and, and safe and the use of PPE, what else do you think will be permanently altered after after the epidemic is over? I think providers have learned to be more self-sufficient. I think during the heavy telehealth period where we were doing 1,500 telehealth visits a day and they were working from home, they had to do things they never had to do before. So I think we're going to streamline our processes, and as a result of that, hopefully reduce our costs some. But I, I think overall we're going to come out of this. And it's interesting, yes, a lot of doctors had to work from home. Do you see that as something that may continue, for example, when one of your physicians has little kids at home, whether it's a man or a woman, and they, and they need to deal with you know, childcare without perhaps hiring a nanny, do you see that you would give people a choice of working for home during certain periods of their life or, or, or not? So, so we're allowing some providers now to work from home. I, I think every patient has different needs and different desires. So I have no problem at all with some of our providers providing telehealth from home. Some, some are doing telehealth one shift a week. There's certain specialties that are better made for telehealth. There's certain things you can do from home. I have no issue with that at all. We've talked about people without COVID, but now I want to ask you about the care of outpatient care of people who are COVID survivors. And I have two questions for you. Um, first is, what kind of health issues are you seeing in these patients? We've 
you know, you read about it and it's just, I mean, it's everything. I, I just read that people are losing their hair, you know, I mean, it's just this incredible spectrum of um, symptoms that they're experiencing. And then are you preparing in any way for what might be a large cohort of people who have symptoms for a prolonged period of time, you know, three, four, six months, the, the people that they're calling the long haulers, um, are you making sure. a special plan for them? So, so I think it's multifaceted. First, let's talk about mental health. I think a lot of people are having mental health issues, whether they had COVID or they didn't have COVID. So I think one major area we need to concentrate on is the mental health needs on the outpatient side. And, and I think we as America have a shortage of mental health providers. So I, I think that's one huge area we need to spend time on. There are people who have post, uh, post-COVID sequelae, um, cardiac, pulmonary, um, you know, it varies. Some people never know they have symptoms at all. And then people who just have chronic fatigue, who just have chronic issues. And I think we're going to continue to learn about it. I also worry about a second wave. And if the second wave comes in and it's that time of flu season, we also have to be able to determine who's got COVID and who doesn't. So in the fall, we're gearing up just in case. So there's a lot of components to this disease that we need to be, we have to be flexible about. We need to figure out next moves. But no doubt about it, there are patients have had severe illness and still have severe issues, even though they're not in the acute phase of the disease. Yeah, and and you have the uh, rehabilitation because what I read that in the UK, they're actually building up special uh, infrastructure of rehabilitation for people with uh, with with the, these long haulers to help them recover as much you know pulmonary function or strength or whatever whatever issue that it is. Yes, and, and the hospital system, at least in the New York area, are putting in specialty hospitals. We're getting post-COVID wards specifically for people who need extra rehab. So besides the usual, what you and I are used to in our career, rehab hospitals, they're actually adding extra post-COVID floors in order to be able to take care of patients like that on the inpatient side. And obviously, organizations like mine are taking care of the patients on the outpatient side as well. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Is there, is there anything else that you would um, like to tell us about uh, your response to COVID? Well, I, I think the key takeaway for everyone is I can't underestimate the need for great communication. That's very, very important. And I recommend everyone two things. One, great communication. And the other thing is be prepared. I wasn't a Boy Scout for very long in life, but... We were fortunate that our experienced team of executives, we had PPE on board before this ever happened. We bought PPE a couple of years ago just in case, and that made a big difference. So I think having the right supplies, having what you need, and most importantly, keeping your physician, staff, and patients safe, because you, you need to have that ability to do that, and you need to have that reputation so that everyone feels comfortable coming to you as an organization. All right. Well, let us let that be the last word. I want to thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I wish you the best as you continue to evolve your, your group in response to um, the pandemic. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. To learn more about how COVID-19 is affecting care delivery, see the show notes or visit AJMC.com. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.